An important note before we begin, this episode uses a lot of strong language. Please use discretion. If there's anything that I'm trying to decode in my work in power, and my understanding of power as it relates to my body, as it relates to my intersections of power and oppression, and how they work together to create the context in which I live. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to episode five, featuring photographer and performance artist Dean Hutton, better known as Golden Dean. Well, uh, we're standing on Church Square, and we are facing the statue of Jan Hofmeier. It's a very, very dominant feature of Church Square. ICA director Jay Patha and I had come to this public space in Cape Town City Centre to discuss a performance lecture that Dean Hutton created during their master's degree at the University of Cape Town. The square is situated in a busy part of the city, at the intersection of Parliament and Spin Street, and on a normal weekday morning, before Corona times, that is, which is when we visited, Spin Street is filled with cars and the square itself sees a more or less constant stream of people passing through on their way to work or the nearby museums and tourist attractions. Standing in the middle of Church Square, with Parliament Street behind you and the Jan Hofmeier statue in front of you, you are surrounded by a combination of heritage buildings and much newer and taller apartment and office blocks. There's also the occasional seagull, the square being only a kilometre or so from the Atlantic Ocean. Here's Jay Patha again, looking at the statue of Jan Hofmeier. Even though there are sculptures by Gavin Younger, uh, that is uh, in effect a slave memorial, small black cubes with names of families of slaves inscribed on them, uh, the, the dominant feature is actually this sculpture coming from our apartheid past, standing on top of a very large plinth, which might be about two and a half, three meters. Yeah, it's quite imposing. And it's in front of the, the, the de Grote Kerk, which is um, a, a, a bastion of apartheid. This monument that Patha is describing and the spot where we were standing formed the focal point of Dean Hutton's performance lecture at the ICA Live Art Festival in 2017. The work was scheduled as part of the festival's nighttime program, and in the darkness of that February evening, what you saw most clearly as you approached Church Square, even from the far side of Parliament Street, was this tall stone plinth lit up with the projected figure of Dean Hutton, wearing a suit covered in bold black and white print spelling out the words, fuck white people. Today I will be performing an intervention in which my body cannot be present. I cannot physically be with you because I've received a range of threats to my body, to my work and to my life. 
and being projected from a secret location in the public square to give a talk and have a public discussion around my work. This action, this performance, this disruption, fuck white people, is having a real world effect in destabilizing white identity, not just here, but internationally. Dean Hutton's work, Fuck White People, was meant to be essentially a freestanding structure, like a gazebo or something, that would be in an open space where they would sit in, in this structure and invite white people in particular to speak about, about whiteness and in Dean's own terms, how to fuck the whiteness in you. So that was the original idea. Subsequently to that, as we approached the Live Art Festival for which the work was commissioned, they, uh, their work at the Iziko National Gallery was vandalized and uh, set up a whole series of altercations with members of the Cape Party in particular and various other members of the public. They began to get quite a few emails and some of them carried death threats. As a festival that comes out of the University of Cape Town, we want to be a platform for artists that take risks in their work, but when their well-being is, is at such obvious risk, we have to take uh, some precaution. So what they decided to do was to have the conversation live so they weren't just appearing they were in a position to answer questions but for them to be in a space that was unknown to people and then they would be live projected onto the front of the sculpture i wanted to speak firsthand to my experience of living here of how we came to live here in south africa we are settlers but we have never truly settled we remain outsiders because we believe ourselves, our white culture, somehow superior against all evidence to the contrary. What if when we first came here we chose to assimilate instead of annihilate, to learn and not impose? Who would we be now? What does it mean to belong? How do you earn belonging? I borrowed these words and I have been walking around in a suit of them for a year, in public, off campus, on the street. When Dean's visage was projected on this, it fit exactly on the plinth. So aesthetically, it all seemed to say a hell of a lot more than we had anticipated. In fact, we were thinking of just putting up a screen, but the fact that there their visage placed inside of this plinth talking about whiteness in this way and uh, addressing the violence was um, was quite extraordinary. I have become hyper visible to people who are very angry that I make work which challenges white supremacy but my body is still white that I can walk around for a year in a suit that says fuck white people without experiencing physical violence is a perfect example of white privilege. My fat queer body, which has been labeled a waste of white skin, no longer needs to wear a suit to fuck white people because my whole existence offends them and that is good. Because the white people who raised me thought so too and yet here I am. 
Fuck White People is not a single performance, but a large body of work that has taken numerous forms, including installations, a durational intervention that unfolded in public spaces across Cape Town over two years, performance lectures like the one you've just heard, and also a huge archive of responses and reactions to the work, which we'll be diving into later. In what follows, my interview with Dean Hutton is interspersed with excerpts from performances of Fuck White People, which were presented as part of Hutton's master's degree. You'll also be hearing the interactions of audience members, which is something Hutton actively encourages, both online and in the performances themselves. Any more questions? Come on, like hardball one. <laughs> I've been, you know, I've been doing the work. <laughs> Fuck White People came to public prominence in 2016, but the act of destabilizing white power and privilege is something that Hutton had been exploring for almost two decades before, through photojournalism and also through a much more intimate lens. Hutton's experience growing up in apartheid South Africa would come to have a particularly powerful bearing on the artistic practice. And this personal story is the point at which our conversation began, and to which we often returned. At the time of our interview, Hutton was based in their home city, Johannesburg, and so we spoke over the phone. I was born in Johannesburg to a poor white family who um, were very abusive to all of their children, and particularly me. I was adopted um, as a baby um, into the family of my aunt, and never quite fitted. There was no Dean Hall <laughs> for me and my family. Um, so I've been an outsider all of my life, an observer, a an unknown, I guess. And instead of just being lonely, I took much of that time that I spent alone making art, drawing for at least four hours a day, reading and doing anything I could to take my mind to places where where it could grow, where I could develop my my own humanity as separate from this family, this um, South African family living in apartheid. I'm white. I'm also genderqueer, a non-binary trans identity with a fat body, a lisp, and an inability to stay quiet in the face of the fuckery that is a world built on white, cis-het imperialism, capitalist, white supremacist patriarchy. My mother was born um, in, in the 50s into a very poor white family. I think she had something like 11 brothers and sisters. Her mother was a nightmare. There's a a point at which, I think when she's 12 or 13, that her mother burns all her clothes and her makeup and the wood burning stove in the kitchen. She sounded like she was pretty much tortured as a child. Then this this moment happens in my mother's life where she wins um, a beauty competition called Miss Legs and Heelbrow. And at 16, she packed up and went to Lorenzo Marx as a child cabaret artist, <laughs> travelling 
between different hotel in Colonial Mozambique. And she's there for quite a while and she, 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 it turns out her father died at some point. So my mother comes back to Johannesburg. She meets my father and she falls pregnant. My grandparents forced them to get married. And she ends up having five children with him by the time she's 26 years old. Things are already going quite badly for my mother by like about 22, 23. My father is a gang leader. He's um, at one point leading the Hells Angels in Hillbrow. When the Hells Angels went to motorcycle group, they were running the drug trade. So that's the kind of man my father was. Stealing drugs from the heart, that kind of thing. Beating my mother to a pulp um, and impregnating her. Then eventually he leaves and my mother is left with these five kids. She's 26 years old and she has nothing. She can't get work because her face looks like a boxer. She's living with her mother who is still the crazy woman that burnt all her stuff. And my aunt goes to her and says, we can look after the child, you'll still see her, blah, 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 blah. And it turns out they don't keep their word. Um, I'm living there for a few months and then they kind of just up and move. They don't tell my mother where they're going. She kind of lost complete contact with me. The next time I saw her, was accidentally bumping into her when I was four years old at um, the Bertram Spa. <laughs> it's a fucking crazy story. I fat queer body, which cannot immediately be gendered, confronts the accepted aesthetic of white beauty standards. My body has always existed at some point or other, somewhere beyond the binary of male or female. I was constantly surveilled and watched in case I um, exhibited the same kind of violence as my father. Um, I was told that I looked like him. And it was quite a thing, like being constantly afraid to exhibit the same kind of behavior of somebody, some ultra violence, and to watch for that in yourself. So I, be I became very watchful of that, and I think I understood issues of power and violence very early and it made me very careful with people. In many ways I have considered myself fortunate to have not developed those family feelings that keep many young white South African people hooked on white supremacy. It's a resistance that has been a fundamental part of me. I understand violence from my conception to the act of standing here. On the other hand, I had an incredible experience at school where I was respected for my intellect, where my humanity was recognised through my schoolwork. I had this ongoing certainty that education would take me free, and it did. When I was 16, I, I walked out of my abusive family home. I, I got put into a place of safety and detention, a place called Norman House, which could have been a terrible experience, but for me it was the first time in my whole life that I felt safe. 
got evaluated and got put into different categories about whether where we would be heading. I got sent to a children's home for Epo Children's Village, which is in Lambton, Germiston. I asked very particularly that I got sent to a multiracial children's home, which was granted. Somehow, the law took me very seriously, even though my family didn't. So I, I, I had a sense of justice being sent to Epworth Children's Village. And they gave me what I needed in terms of counselling, um, being taken seriously as a, as, a, as a person. And they allowed me to continue my education. So I finished high school at Epworth. They offered me a free education at university. They paid for a postgraduate diploma. That was when they sent me to Rhodes. And that set me up for the rest of who I could be. This is not a project about white guilt. This work issues a challenge for us to move beyond how it makes us feel on an emotional level to a position where we are moved to justice for no more reason than that is what is right. That we have an obligation to our humanity to dismantle the system that privileges us above others, to learn to fuck the white in us. With Ed Rhodes that I met photojournalist for the first time, major photojournalist from Peter Magobani to Alf Kamalo, George Hallett. And I was very inspired by their stories of being on the front lines of history, by their firm kind of ethical stance. Um, while I did Rhodes, I met the chief photographer of the Mail and Guardian, and she gave me an internship to the Mail and Guardian where I kind of worked for a year, being paid per picture. <laughs> and in 1998, the Mail and Guardian gave me a job. Just after a job I'd done with the journalists, with one of the other journalists, to the Lesotho invasion, when South African, well, the South African SANDF invaded Lesotho. Around 600 South African troops rumbled in at dawn after predictions that a coup was about to happen here. They're brief to quell the anarchy raging since May's election. It was crazy. <laughs> I was like 22 years old. We went off, like, not knowing what was going to happen. Pitched up at the border. The country went in flames. We managed to get to our hotel just prior to being burnt down. <laughs> and um, would drive the crazy drive through... Masiru, um, looking for pictures and stories and meeting the rebels and everybody else had bulletproof vests, but the Mail and Guardian didn't believe in bulletproof vests, they told me, when I asked for mine. <laughs> and it was really scary, but I, 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 I have this weird thing that I, I don't, even if I'm scared, I don't allow it to stop me from doing what I want to do. We must act against whiteness, carefully. To exist as queer and to love is an act of civil disobedience, a protest at the ways we are rendered silent in violent and mundane ways. In a land where other people live, Audrey Lord writes, I am deliberate and afraid of nothing. Deliberate like an act of creation. 
And then, almost 10 years later, I left the Mail and Guardian because journalism was no longer what what I had entered. Um, it became about corporate management, about profit. I was very lucky, like, just after I quit to win the um, Ruth First Fellowship at Wit. And that year, the topic was domestic violence. And I decided to incorporate a project I'd been doing several years on my mother. So I worked with my mother to tell her story of surviving domestic violence at the hands of my father and other men. And, and like on the night of the exhibition, it's like she, she said something so incredibly profound, which was that no matter what people felt looking at this work, looking at these pictures of her, reading her story, she lived it. So she had nothing to prove. She had nothing to to excuse her life than just the knowledge that she lived this life and here it is, open at the Constitutional Hill at like the greatest courts in the country. Having her story out there as a testimony to her resilience was quite a thing for her. These, my, my, my life, like, I can be a journalist and tell stories of other people's experiences, but sometimes my most powerful stories are my own, the ones that are part of my own narrative. And I recognise that, particularly with doing my mother's story. So that's where this kind of inward-looking storytelling part of me comes from. The Catch-22 of performing a white body is the centering of whiteness. At every point of action, we must ask how we can mitigate the violence inherent in our white body. Understanding the performance of whiteness and the potential to teach us more conscious ways of being in this world. Maybe we can move from there to talking about your transition from photojournalism to, to performance. Your relationship with nude public interventions began with Alberta Whittle, your, your longtime collaborator, on a road trip to Cape Town. Describe that road trip for me and and kind of how performance emerged from it. I offered to take Alberta from Johannesburg to Cape Town and it ended up being from what was going to be like a three-day road trip to almost a week because we kept stopping to take pictures (laughs) and like as we grew more comfortable with each other and we became more daring we started photographing each other nude on public roads. Alberta did it first. She had a practice of kind of nude performances before we'd even met. For me, um, it was something quite new and quite terrifying, but also really, it felt like a liberation. We would took the risk, like whenever we could go over a hill and stop, and we would listen carefully while we were just robe and waiting to hear if we would hear an engine, we'd turn off our engine and 
they'd quickly disrobe and go into the middle of the road and pose. Often we would miss it because we got so caught up in the moment that we would, uh, <laughs> we would, uh, <laughs> we would end up seeing a car on the horizon and trying to run into the car and trying to get dressed, all this stuff at the same time. It kind of became like a really big performance. Got like really practiced about like driving away quickly and it was just the two of us, nobody knew where we were. But we were doing these things and then we eventually got to Cape Town. <laughs> I'd been photographing performances from well, way before, like my second assignment at the Mail and Guardian was photographing the, um, the dance umbrella. And there was just something in this exchange about working with performers that I kind of love how they could be so different from themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the sudden turn and they would be somebody completely new. There was something very inspirational about that, but there was also something very seductive about it. This is a work of love, of self-love, of love of people, of difference, but even more, there's a challenge and a demand for queer love. Queer is the possibility of communities that actually celebrate difference, fluidity and imagination. But start documenting myself, doing nude shoots with myself, and also just like doing selfies and that kind of thing, that allowed me to find my own beauty beyond all of the things I'd ever been told about being ugly or just being fat. All of these words that come between me and my capacity to experience myself on any kind of pleasurable level. And like the way that I could make myself look so good compared to if somebody who didn't give a damn about me took a photograph of me. So I wanted to learn how to make the best possible photographs of myself where I could perform it. Hutton's experiments with self-portraiture opened up a new mode of artistic expression, realized in the figure of Golden Dean. Golden Dean is Hutton's performance avatar, a genderqueer being whose body is painted entirely in gold and who performs unashamedly naked in public. In this recording from September 2015, Golden Dean is standing under the corrugated iron awning of a roadside store in the suburb of Jamestown in Accra, Ghana. It's the Chalewate Street Art Festival which takes place annually in Jamestown and Golden Dean is standing in this spot, swaying their hips from side to side, causing the bell between their thighs to start ringing. Like once I rang the bell, it's like thousands of people that kind of converged around me and then followed me down the streets and like asked me questions and took hundreds of photographs and like the children were all pushed to the front. Deliberately, by the adult, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and like made to confront the queer white body. I became this kind of internet sensation in, in Ghana for a while and I can still go back there and still be recognized. There's also this like atypical appreciation for my body. In Ghana, there are not very many fat people because literally it's unsustainable in that heat. <laughs> um, but 
And it was this really odd kind of hypervincibility of my body in a way that is more flirtatious than South Africa. And yeah, so it's like, it, 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 it was quite interesting playing with the trope. But before Hutton and I got to talking about Ghana, I wanted to know about Golden Dean's very first public appearance, how this shimmering nude avatar had come to life two months earlier in the window of their Tuba Art Gallery in Johannesburg. Hutton and fellow artists Anthea Moyes and Lindiwe Machikisa wanted to turn the window of their Tuba Gallery into a performance space. And to launch this idea and publicize the space, Hutton hired a makeup artist to paint their body in the image of a kind of golden eve in the Garden of Eden. And then I got up, walked through the gallery space, and went and lay down in the window. I wanted to recreate the sense of a, an Henri Rousseau painting in this kind of lush green space, this golden body. And... I lay there for an hour, two hours, and people just stopped and it was immediately like quite electric and people started taking photographs with their cell phones then talking to me and like leering at me and <laughs> at the time I was wearing, um, before the bell, I was wearing um, a soft cock which I had painted gold. So like issues around tech were very confused. I had lots of very different kinds of uh, conversations with people. Some of them very loving, some of them were a bit creepy. But in general, people reacted in a very positive way. I never expected it to be so documented, but people got like really excited and the conversation became more and more and more online and they began reaching me quicker. People started sharing back towards me um, and then like knowing that I'm going to lose absolute control over my image. I have no way of controlling what he said, or what people are going to infer from these, from these images. I, I, I have made a, a, a huge archive of, of conversations that I've captured. Um, there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of love. There's, there's a lot of confusion, but there's a lot about gender and about politics and like what it does mean to be a white body in a post-colonial and decolonial space. Those very important conversations that are very necessary at the time. And I don't mind being a vehicle for that because I do believe in the power of conversation. I'd like if we now all spoke together and can ask questions and we can engage in a, in a proper... Conversation is a critical component of all of Hutton's research and performance-based work. But Fuck White People in particular has foregrounded and in turn been shaped and reshaped by dialogue, discussion and critique. I appreciate what you are trying to do. I really do as a black person. Mm-hmm. But I wonder... Is there another way that you could have done this without pissing off white people and getting them more scared of black people and their blackness? Do you think that there's another way of silencing fuck white people? Um, my question is, if you're interested in 
disrupting, actively choosing queer spaces and how problematic whiteness is in those spaces. For me as a black person, I would say that this subject is it really a white problem, it's a humanity problem. So why don't we say fuck humanity because we don't really establish any kind of platform that we can live together. For me, I think it is a whiteness problem. And those who subscribe to whiteness deem what helps me breathe in seeing you is that white people are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need to be navigating that space. I'm dealing with my wounds. You guys talk to each other. In these questions and comments, which were just a few of the audience's responses to Hutton's 2018 performance lecture, the last voice you heard was theatre maker, performer and teacher Warona Siane. Watching Dean's work puts the burden of racism where it belongs, kind of centralises the white person within the space of racism and has the white person dealing with it in ways that I don't want to be dealing with anymore. And I find Dean's honesty really, really quite enlightening. And it does help me breathe because it's like, yo, at least one person and they are publicly doing it and they're publicly putting themselves on the line, publicly saying actually whiteness is a violent thing and it is problematic. Public responses to fuck white people have, of course, also included attempts to shut down rather than open up conversation. The echoey sounds you're hearing now are the voices of five members of the Cape Party, which is a fringe political party whose main objective is for the province of the Western Cape to secede from South Africa. In the recording, it's January 2017, and the Cape Party members, dressed in white t-shirts with the party's red and blue logo on the front, have just entered the Iziko National Art Gallery, where Dean Hutton's work was being exhibited as part of a group show called The Art of Disruptions. The installation included a poster displaying fuck white people in the same bold black and white print that appears on Hutton's bodysuit. Hutton's artist statement alongside the installation explained, Earlier this year, I photographed a student, Zamam Tunzi, wearing a t-shirt with the words fuck white people smeared in black paint. He was threatened with expulsion and a case of the Human Rights Commission. None of the complainants said anything about the front of the t-shirt, which read, being black is shit. You see, white pain demands attention all the time, while black pain flows constantly. In the video recording of the K-Party members in the gallery, two of them, white men, stand in front of the Fuck White People poster. They unfold a big sticker that says Love Thy Neighbour in pink capital letters and then paste the sticker into the middle of Hutton's poster. Two black gallery employees try to stop them and then try to unpeel the sticker from the artwork but one of the Cape Party members pulls them away aggressively. That's the voice of Cape Party leader Jack Miller, standing in front of the vandalised artwork, looking into the camera and professing the party's love thy neighbour message before the members walk away, leaving the gallery employees to attend to the damage. 
These are the circumstances that you heard Jay Papa allude to at the top of the episode, which led up to the ICA Live Art Festival in 2017. The sticker was painted with the words, love thy neighbor. When, from colonization to gentrification, have white people made good neighbors? Whiteness has always excluded and never welcomed. In order to belong, it asks that I be complicit in the exploitation of all people. It asks that I remain unquestioning of my position and how I got here. It, it wasn't only the K-Party's act of vandalism, but also the increasing prominence of fuck white people online, other allegations of reverse racism, and the furor and hate mails and death threats that followed, which forced Hutton to perform fuck white people at the live art festival from a remote location. It was quite a, it, it was an, a really wonderful event around um, censorship because it was coming off of that case about overcoming these, the possibilities of violence and then allowing the artwork to mutate. You know, Dean is a very special artist. Their, their sense of what they want to do and what to say is, is so secure and so clear that the mode and how they, they get to it is always being steered by this clarity of purpose. A local political party says it's now planning to sue the gallery for what it calls racist hate speech. And Not long after vandalizing fuck white people, the Cape Party filed a lawsuit against the Ezeko National Gallery, alleging that fuck white people constituted hate speech and demanding that the gallery remove the work and issue an unconditional apology. The case went to the Quality Court in Cape Town, but it would be another six months before Hassan learned of the outcome. I always made fuck white people to appeal to a rebellious teenager. Because that was when I first started seeing the problems with whiteness and what white people were trying to make me into who they were. And I resisted. But I resisted very alone. There were, no, there were no other kids like me that I grew up with. They questioned what was going on. It would take me 20 years to meet people like that. So I made this particular performance to appeal to a certain kind of rebellious child in all of us that never accepted the easy answers that they were handed but also provide a point of clarity that whiteness is a choice, that whiteness is not natural, and whiteness can be fucked with. And that we start that by analyzing how we inhabit whiteness. The simple fact is, if I were to wear, do a similar thing, have a display, have a suit that says fuck black people, I would be shut down in a heartbeat. The goal of this video is to show what an attention-seeking hypocrite Dean Hutton is. It's pretty clear to see that Dean Hutton... The complaints about fuck white people from the Cape Party, the Freedom Front Plus, and members of the public, 
the insults and vitriol and memes posted by white supremacists like former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. And on the other end of the spectrum, the messages of unwavering support and encouragement that Hutton received. All of these reactions, which were intended as critiques or celebrations of the work, in fact became a part of the work. This video, I just want to say that I find it quite concerning that the f white people trend is gaining followers and fewer people from other races. All of these reactions formed part of the huge archive of conversations on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, in blogs and podcasts that Hutton captured and assembled as part of their investigation into this question of how white people and white South Africans in particular inhabit their whiteness and how they might be challenged to do so differently. In the time that you wore the suit and that you enacted this, this public intervention of fuck white people, do you think you were able to identify some kind of shift in the conversation around whiteness? Absolutely. Uh, there had definitely been there had definitely been an absolute shift in the conversation. I think um of the conversation, um, an understanding that reverse racism is not real. I think that there is a, a more general acceptance of the need for white people to listen to expressions of black pain without making it about ourselves. Landmark ruling, the Equality Court has dismissed a complaint of hate speech. The On the 4th of July 2017, the Cape Party's allegations against fuck white people were dismissed. Chief Magistrate Daniel Tolare delivered an eight-page judgment in which he found that fuck white people constituted neither hate speech nor unfair discrimination. The Cape Party says it's disappointed by the ruling. It says the decision is a massive and dangerous setback for race relations in the country. Uh, to think that a national art gallery that's funded by the government, by taxpayers' money, uh, can put forward a piece of supposed art... In his judgment, the chief magistrate noted, if there is one thing that the work has achieved, it is to draw South Africans to a moment of self-reflection. I have lived black white people. I have lived class to a side. I have lived humbling myself in ways in which go beyond the performance act because there is a real question around integrity that the work demands and I'm happy that from here into perpetuity there are those words, those eight pages of judgment done by the Equality Court of South Africa defending my artwork and in defending the right of people to lash out at oppressive ideology. My, my work was, was far more of a, of a catalyst to an ongoing performance of people in their own spaces, an ongoing conversation, and, and that, that had been a lasting effect. It's those conversations that their friends have told me about, like listening to their teenage sons in the kitchen speaking about it, or 
the conversations happening with soccer moms on the school run, you know? So they're not conversations that just happen like like in in the halls of academia or like in academic papers. These are conversations that were held in spaces where where art had had very little access to. Like the 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 the, the unintentional affect of of fuck white people will 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 continue. It, Yes, the, the suits, like, lit up or engage violence a lot, but it also really, it really evoked love. An understanding of what it takes to present yourself as visibly anti-white in a white supremacist world. You know, ultimately, like, if there's anything that I'm trying to decode in my work in power and my understanding of power as it relates to my body as it relates to my intersections of power and oppression and how they work together to create the context in which I live it's just like is there even enough time in a lifetime to, to understand that but the more I perform, the more I understand about my own personal power and how I can work to mediate the power of others. This question of power, implicit in each facet of Hutton's work and at every turn of our conversation, is also, not surprisingly, the thread that runs most forcefully through their master's thesis. In 2018, Hutton published this research as a book titled Plan B, A Gathering of Strangers, or This Is Not Working, in which academic analysis, personal narrative and artistic practice converge in an attempt to dismantle, by making visible, whiteness, racism and hegemony in all their forms. And while Plan B is a reflection on Hutton's impulse to queer power and patriarchy, where this impulse has led and where it might still lead. The book is also an insight into where this impulse began. Okay, this thesis is dedicated to the memory of my mother, Madeleine Bernardo. I have inherited her resilience, her wide dead shoulders, and surprisingly compact ass. Principled, practical, honest, and brave, my mother survived the habitual violence of white men without losing her humanity. Somewhere in her, I was queered beyond their reach. That's it. But it's true, it's like... Yeah, like... I definitely think there was something in... Like, within the... Like, when I was in her, that... set me free from patriarchy or like patriarchy to have a space in my life which comes from clearly from that you know the that epigenetic like memory of the trauma that she went through you know I don't know why I didn't work on my other but you know (laughs) each to their own (laughs) 
The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode includes The Summit, Our Fingers Cold, and Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to visual and performance artist Sikumbuzo Makandula. See you then, and thanks for listening. Thank you.